Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen of the Baha'i Blogcast universe, you know who you are, all 27 of you. Tonight, I am joined by the wonderful Sovaita Amani. This is a person of so many talents. She's the founder of the Center for Peace and Global Governance, cpgg.org. We'll get into that later. She worked as a lawyer for 20 years, is a seventh-generation Baha'i. I didn't know that there were that many generations in this faith. So excited to be talking to her tonight. And Silvida, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be missing things from your bio, so you can fill in the gaps. But she's passionate about the role of women in society and issues around global governance, the environment, peace building, and leadership. She's the author of a number of books, including her most recent book called The Alchemy of Peace, Six Essential Shifts in Mindsets and Habits to Achieve World Peace. I can't wait to dig into that. I'm all about that. I want to find, I want to know my six essential shifts in mindsets to help achieve world peace. Um, that was released this year, and that was released partially uh, in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá, who, most of you know, was the eldest son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, and a great spiritual teacher and leader in his own right, uh, who holds a very special place in every Baha'i's heart, and in humanity's heart, for that matter. She hosts her own podcast series called Reimagining Our World. She's got a YouTube channel. Um, all of these aim to inject hope, vision, and a belief that we can make choices that create a more peaceful, secure, and just world. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff I'm leaving out, but welcome, Sovaida, and thanks for being on the blogcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. So excited to be speaking with you. Now, first things first, you're a seventh-generation Baha'i of Persian descent, and I, I, I would love to know how that works. I'd love to hear some of your history of your, uh, I always love to hear from the Persian friends about their family history. Is there a certain descendant or a story you can tell, a, tell us about those seven generations? Oh gosh. Well, the reason it's seven generations is because my first ancestor was uh, a Babi actually. Okay. And he was uh, in, in one of the forts where the Baha'i, the Babis were besieged. And uh, he was with Vahid. So that's where the history begins. The family then ended up in the city of Nairiz, uh, in which there was very, very severe persecution against the Baha'is. Mm. And um, there's some interesting stories, like one of my grandfather, this is my, my maternal grandfather, who had to escape um, a couple of times when, you know, they get warnings that, that the, the enemies of the faith were going to come and pour into their homes, you know, that night and be out to get them and lynch them or uh, wreak havoc in their lives. And so they would escape into the adjoining desert and they had to go hide in caves. And because my grandfather was male, they would put him in a chador, you know, and, and he had to escape, pretend to be a woman in order to to be able to get out of the uh, the village of Nairis. Wow! And for those those listening who don't those you know 
three of you that don't know, the Babis were the, the religious movement that preceded the Baha'i faith. Baha'i faith has two prophet founders, the Bab and Baha'u'llah. And so the early followers of the Bab that preceded being followers of Baha'u'llah um, were greatly persecuted in those early years. There's rumors of, you know, 20, 30,000 uh, put to death in those first tumultuous decades of our faith. But that's amazing that you can trace it back to Babis hiding in caves and fighting alongside Vahid. That's absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. um, pretty awesome. That's, that's pretty awesome. That That's quite a heritage. But, you know, uh, when we were emailing before, one of the things you brought up, um, which I think is, is such a great point, is Baha'is believe uh, in the independent investigation of truth. This is one of the pillars of our faith, that every human needs to find the truth for themselves. We don't inherit the truth of our parents, of our relatives, of our ancestors, of our culture, of our neighborhood church, or what have you. We need to seek and find the truth for ourselves. So how does tell us about your personal journey? I mean, you're a seventh generation Baha'i. I suppose you could have become a Methodist if you so chose, but you decided, <laughs> you know, to become a Baha'i in your own right, even though this is such a you have such a rich family legacy. So tell us how that works. Well, um, as a Baha'i youth, so when one is raised in the Baha'i faith, obviously you do imbibe a lot of the teachings as a youngster. Um, however, we do know, as you pointed out, that one of the fundamental tenets of the Baha'i faith is that we all are enjoined to investigate and search truth without preconceived notions and biases for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So as a teenager, I remember looking at the state of our world and thinking, gosh, you know, we're in a real mess. And I had a couple of questions that plagued me. When I looked around me, I saw that everybody I knew had very strong opinions about how we should go about fixing the world. And I remember thinking, if we can't even as, as students in a classroom or as people in a neighborhood or a city agree to say, okay, you know what, we're going to take Rain's opinion and we're all going to stand behind him and we're going to try his ideas out for a couple of years, see how they work. And then if they don't, then we'll try, you know, Jane's ideas. We're not willing to do that because humans are too egotistical. And I kept thinking, well, then how are we going to solve all these intractable problems that humanity seems to have? And at that point, something clicked in my brain and I realized the only way was if we had a supra-human standard, something that was not human, that was divine, that could be a point of unity towards which we could all look and accept that guidance and follow it. Otherwise, we were in dire trouble. So that was number one. The second thing was this idea of, I used to say to myself, surely it can't be that I am a Baha'i simply because I happen to be born into a Baha'i family, mm. or I'd be an Orthodox Jewess because I was born into that family, or a Shiite Muslim. It can't be a, a question of, 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 of drawing a lottery, right? There's got to be some system if we believe in the existence of a, of a divine force, a conscious force, and if, if we believe that there is a purpose, there's a rhyme and rhythm to this thing called creation, then surely it has to be, there has to be an explanation. And to me, the, uh, the, the principle that Baha'u'llah had brought of progressive revelation, the idea that religious truth is not absolute, but relative to our capacity to understand spiritual truth, 
and that all divine revelators and prophets like Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, the Bab, Baha'u'llah came from the same source for the same purpose, which was to edify, guide us and educate us. That made a whole lot of sense. That was the idea of us going through spiritual school, grade school, so to speak, level by level. And I, I could wrap my brain around that. So those were two of the most um, compelling reasons why I chose um, the Baha'i faith. Hmm. That's, that's fantastic. That, that, makes, that makes total sense. That's really beautiful. And that, that aligns so much with my journey kind of back into the Baha'i faith where it's kind of like humanity needs a plan. We need a plan. Where are we going to get that plan? Yes. Are we going to get it from the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? Are we going to get it from some nonprofits? Are we going to get it from the UN? You know, or are we going to get it from Karl Marx? Like, where, where do we get this plan from? And here's a plan that incorporates a spiritual component that the others haven't. So that's that's really cool. And I understand that you had the incredible bounty of living in the Baha'i Holy Land, which is in and around Haifa, Israel, from the ages of 9 to 16. And you were there. There were hands of the cause there. So many other great uh, teachers of the faith and early heroes and luminaries of the faith. Are there some stories you can share of that time and those incredible people? Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, yes, it was such an incredible bounty uh, when I was there. The, the hands of the cause were resident in the Holy Land. A number of them were still alive. Paul Haney, Mr. Furitan, um, Ruhia Khanum would travel, but then come back. Um, and Mr. Fazy. So those are the four that, that who stand out mm. in my mind. So uh, starting with Mr. Fazy, he was he became, in my mind, my role model, the person I tried to emulate. Now, you know, we all have Abdul Baha as who's this perfect exemplar of, mm -hmm. of the Baha'i teachings. Mm -hmm. But we all also pick other role models. And for me, he was one of those. He combined two very interesting qualities that one rarely finds in leaders, the way we describe leadership in our world today. It was a combination of dignity. When he entered the room, you definitely felt his presence. So charisma, I guess some people would say, but extreme humility to go with it. He would never speak unless someone asked him to speak. Hmm. And yet he had such wisdom, such insight. And he taught us public speaking. So he would gather the children who lived in the, uh, the Baha'i World Center uh, on weekends. We would get together and he would assign us topics that we needed to research. And then we'd stand in front of him and we would deliver oh my our, our presentation. Can you imagine and then, yeah, being eight exactly. or 10 years old and like, okay, you're going to stand in front of this hand of the cause of God and give a presentation yeah. on, you know, right. um, solar electricity or something. Right. And it was all always to do with the, 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 the Baha'i faith. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, and, well. and somehow somehow expounding on the Baha'i teachings. Um, and then he would critique us very gently, um, kind of show us how we could do better. I remember him always saying, be careful not to raise your children with egos. Mm. because that the ego is the bane of our lives and parents are responsible. He said, when your child does well, um, encourage them. Say, well, that was good, but always make it clear to them that they can do better. Never say, oh, you're just, you know, you're the bee's knees. You're just so amazing. You're just so wonderful. You're so perfect because that is not good for them. You will become a test to them. Um, then there was... Uh, I'm not sure I'm 100% on board with his... 
style of parenting because if you are always saying that could be better, that could be better, that could be better, then you also can give your kids a complex and they end up in therapy for the rest of their lives. Well, you know, what's interesting is that psychologists are finding they, they end up in therapy when you tell them they're wonderful because then they get, they, they're afflicted with this idea that they're perfect. They know that they're not perfect right. and they feel they're constantly afraid of failing and it leads to depression. It leads to anxiety. It leads to a feeling of I'm yeah. never good enough. And what if my next attempt is going to lead to failure? Oh my gosh, I better always, my next success better be as good as my last success. That is actually a lot more destructive. Well, that's so, that is very true in this age of helicopter parenting. And but um, <laughs> you know, another Baha'i came on the show, Dara Feldman, and we were talking, and and she was talking about praising the virtues, and one of the virtues being determination, and kind of like if they're trying to do something, like wow, that's so you know that's so creative what you did, and what determination and what follow through you had on that project, and boy, you just didn't quit on that, and your effort that you gave was amazing, and so you're finding ways to kind of praise the qualities of God as you're raising the children. I thought that was a really insightful perspective. I, I totally agree with that, and that totally meshes with what we know as Baha'is is our purpose in life, which is to um, adopt and refine these spiritual qualities because they're the essential limbs that are necessary for our development in the afterlife. That's different from what I call an outcome orientation, where you're looking at a product that's perfect, mm, right? Mm. So, so I think of these as two very distinct things, encouraging the development of virtues in our kids versus saying the product that you delivered was perfect. You are, you are amazing. Mm, so, mm. Because life is about growth and you want them to understand that there's always that they've done great. You want to celebrate the gain mm. um, and but not have them fall into the gap of the difference where they are and the ideal because that that is is very self-destructive. So yes, it's a fine balance. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Other other thoughts, memories from that time? I mean it's um, I mean so many behind Yes, please. Ruhia Khanum was she was my heroine. Um, she could do everything. She was well traveled. She was eloquent. She was an incredible speaker. She had an incredible sense of humor. She was a writer. She was a poetess. Um, she knew everything about antiques and furniture and um, music and you know you geography and history and wildlife and naturopathy and ways of healing yourself with food she was the most incredible human being and yet she'd been the consort to the to the guardian of the baha'i faith shofi effendi who's the second authorized interpreter and leader of the faith after abdul baha and she was blunt and frank um, just an incredible human being. And she used to invite us to the, the house of Abdu'l-Bahá where she lived. Mm. And we would go as young people and help her clean out the pool in the back. And then she would cook dinner for us. And we would sit around the table and we would ask her questions about all sorts of things, you know, anything under the sun. She would tell us stories of her life with Shofi Effendi, just the most amazing memories of, of being in her presence. Wow. What, a, what an incredible bounty practicing 
public speaking in front of Hannah the Cause Faisy and then getting dinner cooked for you by Rahia Kanum and being able to ask her any question. That's that's Baha'i heaven right there, for those wondering. Yep. <laughs> All right, let's skip ahead a little bit. So fast forward through your life, you're a lawyer, and some of your specialties uh, are in global governance and collective security, and you're founder for the Center for Peace and Global Governance. That's cpgg.org. We'll put the link in the bio below. First, for those who might be listening and don't know, what, what is global governance and what is collective security? So uh, global governance, it's finding a way of governing the affairs of the global community of nations. So just as locally you have your city council that, that directs the affairs of your city, or we have state governments for those of us who live in the United States that govern the affairs of the state, or our federal government that governs the affairs of, of our nation, what the world is lacking is a system, a viable system of global governance so that we can direct and govern the affairs of the globe. For instance, in dealing with the pandemic, COVID-19, uh, we need to have a government at the helm of this thing that we call a global village these days or um, a, a government to help us deal with the nuclear threat that still looms large over us. Let me just jump in. I was just reading a, an article yeah. today about how how little the U.S. and China, who are kind of at loggerheads right now, have been sharing with each other about what they've learned about COVID. And the American vaccines are much more successful than the Chinese one, and we're not sharing it with them. And we're not sharing the technology and... Um, this is a travesty. This was an opportunity. COVID was an opportunity for nations to really be working together. And instead, we're still at odds. Exactly. No, that's absolutely right. So when you have a, if you like, a, a federal system of government, which is something that Baha'u'llah, new vision that Baha'u'llah has brought, he's actually very clearly advocated for us to move towards a global federation in which every nation state becomes like the equivalent of a state within the United States, members of this global federal government. And then that government needs to have certain powers. And one of the powers that you allude to that I've written about is the need, for instance, for uh, an international intelligence agency so that we have information that is timely and accurate that we can share. But we also need, say, a global health body that actually represents the people of the, the world, which the World Health Organization currently does not. It, it is not elected by the people of the world. It does not represent them. It is politicized, which is why you have the problems between the US and China, each trying to hide the origins of the disease that we're facing COVID and then also holding close to their chest uh, the, the solutions and answers to the problem, as you say, the vaccine technology and so on, and, and, and production, uh, uh, manufacturing of the vaccines and, and equitable distribution, these would all fall uh, under the purview of a kind of world federal government that functioned well. And Baha'u'llah, you know, first to really champion that, second to champion it, Gene Roddenberry, creator of Star Trek, because that's what Star Trek's all about. It's a global federation. Exactly. It's called the. Exactly. It's literally called the Federation, <laughs> and yes, they're yes. the Federation Space Force exploring other planets. But back on planet Earth, all the countries are operating like states under a global system. It's folks. It's not 
you know, it's not some kind of like globalist conspiracy to take away your rights. It's where we're headed. Exactly. It's the next inevitable stage in humanity's evolution, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. And what about collective security? I just, I suppose that's part of what global governance uh, would be um, uh, interested in. It is, exactly. It is one aspect of, of global governance. And, and the idea is, is, is very simple in the Baha'i faith, which is that you all, all nations of the world get together and they settle on some, uh, both principles and ways of behaving that include, by the way, ensuring that every nation has a limited amount of arms, only enough to maintain order within its borders. The rest need to be destroyed. And then Baha'u'llah says, as part of this principle of collective security, that having entered this treaty where you all agree to maintain the peace of the world and not enter into an arms race and a whole bunch of other things, if any one nation breaches one of the provisions of this treaty, all the nations of the world agree to arise as one against it and bring that nation to heal. Mm. That is the principle of collective security, standing up to the bully in the playground, to put it a different mm. way. Mm. What are some other principles of global governance? What other things would that be watching out for? The environment? Uh, so principles or what do we, so the kinds of problems that we would be yeah, tackling I guess are definitely I, I'm, things Yeah, like, I haven't really thought this through. Like if, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> when there, what, what subcommittees would be there? There would probably be a disaster <laughs> relief subcommittee, a, some kind of food program, agriculture, environment, science. You know, science. It's, it's interesting you should ask that question because the Baha'i writings advocate starting not from like, what are all the themes and topics we're going to cover? Because that's the way the world functions right now, oh, right? Okay, so that's okay. where our minds go to, right? Okay, yeah. So, so this is fascinating. So what the writings provide, which I find really interesting and compelling is first of all, a vision of where we want to end up. Mm. What do we want our world to look like? Oh. And writ you know, short, that is a unified world. Mm. Unity is the goal. The tool by which to get to unity are a set of principles. And the Baha'i writings are very clear that what the nations of the world, the leaders need to do is get together and identify a set of principles that are going to, if you like, to be the operating principles and how they're going to treat each other. Identify them, achieve agreement around them, and then... And this is the magic. Start applying them methodically to solving whatever problem, whether it's border problems, climate change, the global financial crises, terrorism, genocide, um, the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, immigration. It doesn't matter. The first step is not to set up all the subcommittees and say, oh, what are <laughs> all the solutions to each of these? Because there are hundreds of problems. The first step is, and this is actually the Universal House of Justice, the current governing body of the Baha'i faith, articulated this in its um, message sent to the peoples, addressed to the peoples of the world in 1986, entitled um, The Peace Message, affectionately, mm -hmm. The Promise of World Peace. And in it, they say that world leaders would do well before they try to solve any problem to first identify the principles involved and then apply those principles. Mm. Now, just as you said, Baha'u'llah first had the idea and then Star Trek came along for the idea of federation, the same happened with this whole concept of identifying principles first. The Universal House of Justice was like the lone wolf, if you like, with this idea. Not many years later, you start to hear leaders around the world, really eminent leaders, arriving 
at their own conclusion that the only way out of the mess we're in globally is to first identify a set of principles, mm. agree on them, and apply them methodically. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the, the faith, in addition to principles, gives us a blueprint for institutions that we need, certain key institutions as part of this global world federation. And then the beauty again there is that the principles need to be woven into the very fabric of the institutions. You know, we talk about lack of political will these days, but the Baha'i view is that political will needs an institution to have as its focal point through which it can operate. Wow. So we need both. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Wow. This is really sparking my brain in some beautiful ways. So the organization, the Center for Peace and Global Gover Governance, what does it aim to do? I mean, you know, the Baha'i faith, as you've been addressing, there, it gives us kind of a more generalized vision for world peace, but you've been kind of addressing this previously, but the practical roadmap, you know, for, for getting there is, is complicated. So are there other ways that we need to marry the principles and teachings of the Baha'i faith with the, the work that needs to be done in the field of global government governance building? Well, you know, I take my marching orders from, again, Shoghi Effendi, who urged all Baha'is to um, get engaged in the business of correlating the Baha'i teachings with the needs of the world. One of my fav favorite quotes from Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, is be anxiously concerned with the needs of the age you live in and center your deliberations on its exigencies and requirements. So Shoghi Effendi told Baha'is that you need to get really well-versed in what the problems of the world are and what the needs are. Because if you don't know what the needs are, you can't meet humanity and individuals where they are and then help them shift, right? And so the faith gives us the vision, the glorious vision. It gives us the tools, which are the principles, and it gives us the blueprint. So in terms of architecture, we have the blueprint, the tools, and we have prior models, historical models of success. But we as Baha'is, I believe, have to do the hard work, which is to figure out how we get from here to that grand vision. Mm. It's going to involve a series of baby steps. And so the, the, my work at the Center of Peace and Global Governance has been to, first of all, raise consciousness about where we need to go, about what's possible, and then to correlate the Baha'i teachings with the needs of the world and offer very concrete recommendations on next steps. You know, what can we do next in order to go in the direction of that vision? We need a lot of Baha'is working on this because there's a lot of work to be done mm. and the world, as we can see, is falling apart at the seams. Mm. So there is a dire need for good ideas. There are many ways of getting there. The main point is to, as I say, raise consciousness and spark people, get people to start thinking about these questions and talking to each other and adopting, as we love to say in the Baha'i community, a humble posture of learning, recognizing that a recommendation I propose is not the be all and end all. It's just a thought that's thrown into the mix to spark thinking. And then maybe somebody else can take it and run with it or say no, but it sparks a different thought mm -hmm. that may be useful. And I think it bears noting that 
the ideas you're talking about are on a very grand scale at the you know heights of law and, and business and governance and and whatnot. But I think that also Baha'is can be involved in a similar matter, no matter what line of work you're in. You know, if you're an elementary school teacher or you're a cobbler or you're an optician, you know, how can you apply the principles of of unity and service and being anxiously concerned with the needs of the age you live in with your own in your own business and get the other opticians of the area to donate used frames that you're all going to ship off to, uh, you know, a, a poor country or a ravaged country. Um, I think it's important to not think of it as like, oh, well, I'm going to let all the fancy people in the UN and in DC and New York take care of these things, but I can do it on, my, on a community level. I'm so glad you made that point. You know, this was my purpose in actually writing the the latest book I wrote, because I realized that, you know, in my first book, I thought about, I, I talked about principles and how, you know, what are the principles we can identify and then how we could solve all these global problems. I demonstrated how we can solve all these global problems by applying them methodically. And then I wrote my second book saying, okay, and here are the institutions and why having these institutions is key and how it'll solve problems. And then by the time I came around to a couple of years ago, I realized, you know, we're not going to be able to shift anything at what you call the grand scale, so to speak, unless we create shifts in the way we think about what's going on in the world, the way we interpret reality, um, the way we understand why we are where we are, what are the choices we've made that have gotten us here, accept responsibility, and then recognize that we have choices to make in how we want to shape our world going forward. And this is the business of every human being on this planet. And without it, none of the rest is going to happen. And so I think this is the most important, I've come to understand after 20 years doing this work, that this is where it all starts. And having then delved further into the Baha'i writings, I am comforted by and supported by that idea. You know, Abdu'l-Baha talks over and over again about the need to change, to reframe our conceptions. Mm. That's changing mindsets. And he talks about the need to change our behaviors. That is changing behaviors when done over and over become habits, which when done by enough people become culture that becomes our global reality. Mm. So I think this is the starting point where we can engage every man, woman, and child and elementary school teacher and cobbler and optician mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to help us change our frame of reference and replace the old filters we have with, with new filters or new lenses. I use those examples because we have a we have a huge audience of cobblers that listen to this show. <laughs> Yay! I'm not sure why. Opticians too. They write me every week. All the cobblers love the Baha'i Blogcast. <laughs> I, I have a theory about this, but I wanted to ask you a question. I was recently uh, posted on Instagram uh, an interaction I had with an interesting woman who was anti-mask and anti-vaccine and anti-a lot of science. And I was just very gently and, and lovingly just kind of picking her brain. But, I, but she said, listen, this is a battle between good and evil going on in the world right now. I was like, oh, okay, who's evil? And she said, the globalists. And... Mm -hmm. There's a big segment of the population, not just in America, but around the world, that believes that globalists and globalism is is actually the biggest evil, not the biggest 
goal or end point or something like that. Obviously, they haven't watched Star Trek. But <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a theory about this that's a minor theory, but you, you, you might know better. What, what are your thoughts on, on this trend, although it's not a modern trend? Actually, it's so interesting you should raise that. And you haven't even read my book, right? So one of the old mindsets that we have... I read every single one of your books in preparation for this Uh podcast. Oh, yeah. Three times. You believe that you believe anything. (laughs) (laughs) Only three? (laughs) Well, then then clearly you haven't gotten it yet. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, please. So one of the old mindsets as I did my work that I pinpointed as being troublesome is exactly the one that you've you've mentioned, that you've articulated, which is this belief that globalization and globalism are the reason and the cause for all the woes that humanity is suffering from. And it's a very interesting way to interpret a certain reality. So as professors of history will tell you, and I did some reading on this, um, sort of well-known professors at East Coast universities will tell you that globalization started the moment our ancestors, our original ancestors left Africa to go to the rest of the world. As soon as we started to travel away from home, as soon as we started to create relationships of trade, as, as soon as we started to take ourselves and, and integrate with other people, globalization began. It has been a process. Unlike what most people believe, globalization is not a recent phenomenon. It's the continuation of a very old phenomenon. And if we were to try to reverse it, and there have been points in the history of the human race where we have tried to reverse globalization, Um, you know, the Luddites in England tried to do that, uh, you know, break uh, all the machinery, industrial machinery, because they wanted to go back to the old, good old ways of living. You know, Um, if we did that, we would not be in a good state. Um, Globalization has actually helped... uh, raise so many people out of poverty. Mm. We don't talk about it enough, but one of the the underbelly of globalization, so it's done a a lot of wonderful things that I'm not going to get into, but the underbelly is it has made us more interdependent and interconnected. And the underbelly of that fact is that we've become prone to systemic risk. Like the body, the limbs and the members and organs of the body are disparate parts, but they're all connected as one. The body therefore becomes prone to systemic illnesses like cancer. You can't say, oh, let's just chop the body into pieces because we don't like the fact that we're so interconnected. No, it's wonderful being interconnected. Um, There's a wonderful Singaporean diplomat who has this analogy that I really want to share with the listeners here. I've never never had anyone quote a Singaporean diplomat on the show before. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, (laughs) This is, there's got to be a first for everything. So here he goes, right? He says, humanity used to be 193, uh, like 193 boats. So these are the nations bobbing on the sea of international life. It really evokes the imagery here. He says, but now we've become a ship with 193 cabins. And while each of the cabins is run beautifully internally and has staff and crew, 
there is nobody staffing the ship. There is no one at the helm of、mm. the ship. So once we encounter problems like the pandemic today, like、uh, climate change, there is nobody that can guide and steer us. So the beauty of globalization is that. It has made us prone to these systemic risks, and all this means is that we now need to shift and adjust our mindset to recognize that we have become one. That there is a certain spiritual law in the universe、mm. called the law of the oneness of not just people but of nations, and that once we embrace this law and make it, as Shuri Fendi says, the ruling principle of international life. Then we're golden. We can find amazing ways to work together to solve these seemingly disastrous problems, and allay、uh, the concerns of your friend, the lady who had such problem with globalization. It's not the globalization's the problem. It's the way we perceive it and our failure to keep up. And create the kinds of systems for organizing human affairs in order to deal with the current reality, which we cannot undo. We can't unscramble the egg. That's one of my favorite sayings. Can't unscramble the egg of globalization. Did the Singaporean so, diplomat say that one as well? No, no he didn't.、Okay. That's that one's all. Can、mine. we get him on the show? I don't know. See, I assumed it was a him. It、I、could have been a her. It, it, you know, you did assume, and it, it was a him. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll let you、that. off with that one because I may have alluded to the fact that it was a man. Well,、so. going back to this globalization <laughs> idea, and, and forgive me for kind of digging into this a little bit, but I find it fascinating. A couple of thoughts that I had were: number one, humanity has always been tribal, or its origins were tribal. You know, we're the people of this cave, and you're the people of that cave, or the people of this valley, and we don't like we have curly hair. We don't like the straight-haired people from the other valley. We don't trust them. So you know, there's that element. Nationalism fuels that same kind of tribalism. So it's the tribe of you know, the, in this case, the United States of America, distrustful of all the other tribes over there that want to take away our American way of life. But also, throughout recorded history, there's always been this kind of tenor of like, hey, someone else is actually pulling the strings in our country. You know, there's always been like you you read back to you know Czarist Russia and like oh the Czar married this woman from France but really her father is calling her and France is calling the shots in Russia and we're really being controlled by French interests. You know, time and time again you read that when you study especially European history. So there's always this kind of like it's those those other people out there, those other tribes out there are actually controlling the interests、um, in our nation. And the other point about it is, there can be evils of globalization if globalization is not based on spiritual principles. So, if if the idea of globalization is that rich countries profit、um, on the broken backs of poor countries, that's part of globalization. That's part of how it's been working.、Um, some people profit, and some people lose by it. So, there there can be evils that come from globalization if it doesn't have that foundationality of Of that you were talking about, based on on Baha'i principles. That that's so true. Exactly, it comes back to, it's you know to me it goes beyond the idea of even principles. I really have come to the conclusion that there are just as the the law of gravity, right, is a, a law that governs our physical reality. In our social reality, there's certain laws that are so fundamental that we ignore at our peril. One is the law of the oneness of humanity, 
And one of the outflows of that law is the law of fairness and justice, right? Which, which would tackle exactly the problem that you're talking about with, with the evils of uh, people making profits on the backs of others. And just as you wouldn't dream of building an airplane, uh, ignoring the law of gravity, I mean, we do have free will choice, we can ignore it, right? But it wouldn't work out so well. And yet we have been insistent on ignoring the laws, the spiritual laws of oneness and justice and fairness mm. in building our institutions of social organization and including building our systems of um, uh, our societal systems, whether they're financial or corporate or environmental or political. And somehow we think we're magically going to escape unscathed. We're starting to see the, the amazing downfall of all these systems. And it's because we have ignored these fundamental laws. So yes, globalization as it is now is missing uh, these laws that, as I said, need to be woven into the fabric. But the Baha'i vision and blueprint involves weaving those into the fabric of the new institutions of governance and society. And as we're told, we're in a time of great uh, integration and great disintegration happening at the same time. And there are a lot of steps of integration uh, happening uh, in the direction of global governance. Can you give some real-world, real-time things that have worked, are working, and also some examples of things that haven't worked or needs, need to be fixed? So real time. So, so one of the most real time, real time things that's happening is that for the first time, the United Nations of the last year and a half decided that it really needed input from the peoples of the world about how to, to change and reform itself. They're trying um, because the, the, the United Nations lacks a lot of the, the pieces that Baha'u'llah talks about um, that are necessary in organizing our, our global system of go governance if we're going to achieve a peaceful and just world. And what was fascinating is this uh, drive by the UN coincided with COVID. And the beauty of COVID, the opportunity it presented was that people before used to fly into the United Nations for these, for these consultations and talks, but people couldn't fly in. So it opened up the field for all these voices from villagers in Africa and Asia and Latin America to get on Zoom mm. <laughs> and actually have their voices heard. Now, one of the ideas that's being floated around by civil society organizations at the moment and has been gaining traction is the idea of creating a world parliament, which is one of the teachings of Baha'u'llah, and it is one of the key institutions of a world federal system. What is it basically? It's a collective decision-making institution mm. that deals, that, that has the power to bind all the nations with laws that it creates, say, in the field of climate change, in the field of pandemics, uh, the problems that you alluded to with respect to the pandemic and not sharing information, lack of transparency, all that would be taken care of by a global parliament, basically, that is also directly representative of the people of the world. In other words, the people of each country would actually elect their representatives to that world parliament Unlike what happens at the UN today, where people at the General Assembly are appointed, it's kind of these are like plum appointments as thank yous mm. uh, to people who serve their countries. And very often it's a boondoggle, right? So what we actually want is people who are have their hearts in the right place, who are competent and who 
represent the people of their countries. So to me, this is one of the exciting developments that the world is slowly coming to realize that we do need uh, a global body that has the capacity to pass binding legislation and that is representative of the peoples of the world. So something that's worked really well already historically, really important, and I dedicated a whole book to explaining it, uh, Bridge to Global Governance, was the European Union, the founding, the founding institution of what today we call glibly the EU was an organization that came into being after the Second World War. So Europe was decimated. Everything was destroyed. They needed to rebuild. They needed to build buildings, ships, railways, everything. Mm -hmm. For all of this, they needed coal and steel. Germany was rich in coal. France wasn't. They'd been at loggerheads for centuries. They had entered into many wars because they wanted to access coal. Think oil and gas, wars over oil and gas, right? Same, same equivalence. Finally, somebody by the name of Jean Monnet comes up with this brilliant idea. He says, why don't we take the coal and steel that all the countries in Europe, whoever wants to participate, whatever you have, we'll pool all of this coal and steel and we'll take it away from the national governments and we'll put it in the hands of a supranational authority that will have a whole bunch of powers. It was a brilliant idea. And the short of it is that that idea not only was the beginning of the European Union, but it brought peace to Europe. After centuries of fighting between these nations, that all came to an end. You know, when you read the literature of how Germans and the French used to talk about each other, they'd say things like, oh, we drink the hatred of each other with our mother's milk. We will <laughs> always hate each other. We will, this will never change. And yet, practically overnight, they were able to solve it by creating the system. So this is an amazing role mo wow. a model that works and we can learn from what worked, what didn't work, and we can apply it at a global level. And that's one of the pieces of work that I'm really interested in doing. I'm passionate about it. I've been writing about for years. Yeah, I mean, one of the, really, when you put it that way, one of the miracles of the last hundred years is the peace that we see in Europe, you know, which for hundreds of years, maybe longer, maybe thousands, was at war. And it was unimaginable in the 1930s that you'd ever yep. have Germany and France sharing. <laughs> yep. And, and it was 1952, so only 15, 20 years later, yeah. where this almost as a magically overnight happened. Of course, after a lot of suffering caused by the Second World War. Yeah. But there's a great statement by Chancellor Adenauer of Germany at the time. You know, one of the areas that France and Germany used to fight over was the Saar region on the border that was rich in coal. And he's famously said, oh, wow, you know what? If we sign on to this system, then it really doesn't matter anymore yeah. to whom the SAR belongs. Mm -hmm. It can belong to anybody because we're all going to get the benefit of the coal there. To be honest, I don't even know where the former SAR region ended up because it just doesn't matter. So we don't talk no about it No one cares anymore. about the SAR anymore. Nobody cares. <laughs> no. And anyway, coal is bad. One of the things I have really enjoyed seeing the last couple of years is when the UN came up with these sustainable development goals, mm -hmm. zero poverty, yes. hunger, quality education, gender equality, you know, uh, affordable clean energy, et cetera. There's 17 of them, climate action. Uh, and, it, and it feels like a beautiful unity that's created of like really breaking down 
Now, like you said earlier, there isn't a foundation of a spiritual wisdom to help us tackle it and principles of that spiritual wisdom to help us tackle those problems. Everyone has a different way of wanting to tackle sustainable and clean energy. Some people might think it's a capitalist way. Some people might think it's more of a socialist way, but it's one of the, for the first time, you know, with the, with the Paris agreements um, around climate change and, and these sustainable development goals, like there, there is a, a universal focus you know, on, you know, breaking down what's wrong and where our attention needs to go? You know, I yes, yes and no is the answer I'm going to give you. So we're very brilliant at coming up, uh, identifying goals and plans and identifying where the problems are and, and knowing where we need to end up. What seems to be lacking is motivation. And I'm reminded of a statement by Abdu'l-Bahá in which he says that uh, we Baha'is, our central concern is peace. It's not just an aspiration. It's not just a goal. And he says what's required to achieve peace is a motivating force. And he says that motivating force only comes um, through divine um, assistance and through divine guidance. When I look at, so the current SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, were formerly the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. We had a deadline for achieving them. Humanity missed that deadline. So we kind of said, okay, we're going to start again. Well, you now know, it's by 2030. We're not going to create yeah, this. Yeah. The, yeah, exactly. Now it's 2030 and we're going to call them the Sustainable Development Goals, trying to instill this motivation. But that's what's lacking. It's, it's, not, it's not a lack of programs. It's not a lack of goals. It's the political will and it is the... Um, the drive to do what's necessary to get there. You spoke about the Paris conference. So again, we know what the problem is. The scientists keep telling us, they've just come out with their latest report telling us, yes, it's even worse than we thought it was going to be. It's going to be catastrophic if we don't fix this in the next nine years, right? The, the, the time frame's getting smaller. And yet, what did the Paris conference do? It said, oh, let's make everything voluntary. Everything's going to be voluntary pledges. We're not going to force any country to do anything. We're so far from the vision of Baha'u'llah of creating a global parliament with binding legislation that every nation has to live up to. So what happened with these voluntary pledges? Well, first of all, they're voluntary. So governments come and go. And we saw with the United States, we pulled out of the Paris Agreement with, with one administration. Then we moved back in. Who knows what will happen with all these 193 countries? And scientists tell us that even if we lived up to every single pledge, we're still going to fall far short of where we need to be. So you see, again... We, we, we sometimes hoodwink ourselves when we don't look at reality and see, and Greta Thunberg, God bless her, has been very good about doing this, saying, even if you fulfill the pledges, which you're not going to, <laughs> we're not going to get there. It's not going to get us far enough, fast enough. So this is why we need to really make, to radically reconceptualize society. And this is the goal of suffering, according to the Baha'i writings. This is why we need to be going through a pandemic right now. And if we don't learn our lesson, as you said earlier on, 
Now it's only going to get worse. The vise is going to be squeezed and we're going to have more and more global problems. This is what the Baha'i writings tell us are going to happen. I mean, this is not me just being a doom and gloom uh, you know, naysayer. Doom and yeah. gloom. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so we have choices. Now let's move forward here to the alchemy of peace. Uh, mm-hmm. This is your most, this is your latest book. Correct. Uh, I read it three times. I wasn't sure when it was published. Um, This was written in honor of the centenary commemoration of Abdu'l-Bahá's passing and an acknowledgement of his guidance on a variety of topics, including how we elect fit secular leaders and his advice that the answer to the world's problems lie in creating this world federal government that you've been talking about. But can you tell us about this book and its uh, its message? Yes. So... The book posits basically that just as in our individual lives, when we see that things aren't working for us, uh, the first step that we need to take is to have a clear-eyed vision of what got us into the hot water we're in in the first place. And it's usually a bunch of choices we've made. It's choices about how we choose to think about things and how we choose to act. So I took that message, which um, I, I also do coaching. And so this is something, a technique I use with my clients. And I d- like decided soccer to coaching? take this technique. No coaching, life coaching. Oh, um, great. Life mastery coaching. Yeah. So I decided so you take to lessons take in principles. world governance and then apply it to individual <laughs> transformation. I do it. I actually do it the other way around. Okay. I take, I, I t- yeah. So this is what I did here is took the techniques that I use in helping people shift their lives and turn their lives around, mm. right? Uh, helping them identify what filters and mindsets got them to where they were, what it's costing them. Do they like the results or not? If not, what different choices can they make, mm. both in terms of changing their filters and then changing the habits. Hmm. So what the book does is says, okay, here's a certain number of mindsets that we collectively have that have not been serving us well, to put it mildly. They are destructive. Let's identify them. Step one of the alchemy, what I call the alchemy of peace method. It's a four-step method. Identify the mindset that's gotten us into the problems that we have now, okay? okay? A collapsing world order. Then identify the habits that flow from that mindset. Having done that, make a choice to replace the old mindset with a new, different, more empowering one. And I propose what that new mindset should be. And then put in place the habits that naturally flow from that new mindset. That is basically what the theory of the alchemy of peace method is. That's the method. Hmm. That's what the book is based on. It it presents and proposes this method for solving a whole bunch of global problems and for achieving peace. The goal is to achieve peace. So to achieve peace, if we were to replace these six old, outworn, dysfunctional mindsets with these six new ones and take a whole bunch of rotten old habits that are no longer serving us and replace them with the new habits, then we are well on our path to peace. That essentially is what the book is about. And how is this uh, wonderful philosophy path that you've uh, uncovered, how is this inspired by Abdu'l-Bahá? Oh, because all the actual, when you delve into the actual mindsets, and so first of all, I told you about, there's that quote from Abdu'l-Bahá, it's one of many, in which he says that it's time to reframe your conceptions, Hmm. and it's time to change your behaviors. 
Mm. So there you go. Mm. Mindsets and behaviors. Mm. All right. And he says this in, in many different ways, in many different places. So that's one. So that that's the genesis of, 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 the, of the model. And then, as I say, my work in coaching informed it. Then the second level of inspiration from Abdu'l-Baha is as you look at the different mindsets and habits, there are plenty of writings of Abdu'l-Baha that inform us what these old mindsets are, what the new ones should be, what the old habits are, and what the new ones should be. One actually has to go in and do the work. I mean, it's not like he handed it to us on a platter and said, okay, here are six old mindsets, here's six new ones. Mm. So it was, it was the work that I did in delving into the Baha'i writings and looking at what the needs of the world were and then saying, how can we use this, leverage the Baha'i writings, correlate the teachings in order to arrive at a peaceful world? And I can give you one simple example. Great. Please do. So one of the old mindsets that has is really destroying us is our uh, mindset around what power means in our world today, mm. our relationship to power mm. and what the role of people in authority is or should be. So we generally view uh, power and people in power as wanting to dominate and control us, to grab our resources and run with them, mm. including in globalization, which you talked about. We also think of people in power as being self-interested and egotistical. Mm -hmm. That's what we expect. And we also somehow think of them as being a cut above the rest of us. They're somehow superior to us. Well. As a result of these old mindsets, we tend to be very cynical. <laughs> so the habit that ensues is based on cynicism about those in authority and power. And we see this in spades in the United States and everywhere in the world. We're very cynical about leaders who have any amount of yes. power. So we tend to sit out elections and then people get elected and we don't like. And then we're all upset because somebody else stepped into the vacuum. We end up electing people who lack vision, who are not transparent with us, who don't tell us the truth, who can't rally us around a unity of vision and unity of behavior. We've seen this in spades with COVID everywhere in the world, every single country, maybe with the exception of one I can think of, which has been amazing, New Zealand, uh, really brought their people along with them. Uh, using a lot of spiritual principles, which is which is very interesting, and run by a woman, yay! Right. <laughs> um, so, it, so, so we we have ended up, and we keep electing unfit leaders. So recently, a butcher on the streets of Beirut was interviewed. You know, uh, Lebanon has been one of those countries that on all the indices has now fallen way down in terms of levels of poverty. 55% of the population is now considered poor mm. because of all the corruption that's been going on for years by the leadership. Okay, this dominance and egotistical self-interest. And this butcher said, you know what? The weird thing is if you held an election tomorrow, this we would elect the same people. Mm. So this is a, a, a habit that we all yep. have in all parts of the yep. world of electing unfit leaders. So how could we replace this habit? Create a new relationship to power. What if power, people, the role of people in power were simply to create those conditions in which we can all actualize our potential? Hmm. What if that was the new definition of power? Hmm. 
Now, as soon as you start to think of that's the role of power, you the kinds of people you think about electing to make that a reality are very different from thinking that power is about people dominating you and getting access to your resources and being self-interested. So you start then to develop the habit of looking for certain key qualities like honesty, lack of prejudice, competency, mm. so little competency de demonstrated in COVID everywhere mm. in the world, mm. everywhere mm. at all levels. Um, and uh, the ability to take people, as Rosalind Carter famously said, to take people where they don't want to go, but they need to be. Mm. Like with vaccinations, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like with climate change. Um, this is the job of leaders to educate and bring us along lovingly and, and, and uh, clearly and with clear messaging based on sound facts. Yeah. So, so these are the kinds of things. So this alchemy of peace method, when you apply it just in this one area, yields amazing, amazing results. I, I love what you're saying so much. And I think often about this idea of power. Uh, Russell Brand is one of my favorite kind of thinkers and speakers on his podcast. He's always talking about power. And I have a communist friend uh, who's a rabble-rouser poet, and I love him, and we mostly agree on most everything, but it's always framing this like we need to, imp we need to give power to the disempowered. But if, if the definition of power is to oppress and keep people down and get your way over other people's way, then, you know, when I was a child, I lived in Nicaragua um, under uh, Samosa, and then um, the Sandinistas came in, and we just see the exact same thing played out. Yes, the leftist one, there was a revolution, there was a people's uprising. Yeah, there's some few more health clinics, but it's essentially the same thing. The people in power own most of the land, they own most of the resources, and they oppress the other people. And now they're locking them in jail and shooting uh, members of the um, of the press, just like they did under Samosa. <laughs> it's just the exact same. Because if you don't change that definition of power, that's just going to play out. You give power to the disempowered, and they're going to use that and create another class of disempowered. Perfect. Exactly right. And it's based on the premise that human beings really only function when we have competition, as opposed to replacing that mindset with the idea of what if human beings were originally created and are naturally inclined to be collaborators. Yes. Sounds like you need, you need to get together with Michael Carlberg and have this discussion. Yeah. Uh, so Abdu'l-Bahá, 100-year anniversary, he was the kind of focal point and dedication of this most recent book. Is there a, a story about Abdu'l-Bahá that, that you can summon that kind of like summarizes um, the work that you do? Actually, there's a, there's, there's a great one. It's, I don't know if it qualifies as a story in the way you're thinking about it, but, but it, is, it is a story in my mind, and I think it's very effective. So, you know, Abdu'l-Bahá traveled the length and breadth of this country, the United States of America, in 1912. And he met with people high and low from all walks of life, all backgrounds, and including some officials in Washington, D.C. And apparently one of these high officials came to him and said, I want to serve my country. Could you please guide me and tell me how you think I can best serve my country? And Abdu'l-Bahá immediately told this gentleman, he said, the best and most effective way you can serve your country and while you're at it, humanity, 
is by working diligently to export the principle of federalism on which your system of government is based to the rest of the world, because this will be the guarantee of the world's peace. Okay, this was in 1912. Fast forward almost 100 years, it was actually 99 years, in 2011, Europe is going through a financial crisis, the Euro crisis, desperate, they don't know what to do. Members of the European Central Bank fly to New York to consult with the Department of Treasury and muckety-muck officials and say, help us, tell us how to organize our finances. Guess what happens? This was reported on the front page of the International Herald Tribune. And people didn't comment on it. I practically fell off my chair. But what these American officials, not Baha'is, but American officials did, was they said, here is our advice to you. And they handed them a copy of the Articles of Confederation and said, Compare it with the U.S. Constitution. These are the documents that you need to take back home to Europe. We, the peoples of America, the 13 colonies, were exactly in the same pickle that you find yourselves in today. And the only answer, solution to the problem of debt that we had was to, um, to forge ourselves and create a, a federation of the United States. In other words, we needed to unify and integrate, which is all that federation is about. You can substitute the word federation with deeper integration and unity. It is the next inevitable stage in these concentric circles of unity that humanity has been building that you talked about from family to tribe to city-state to nation. Mm. Next step is to owe our primary allegiance to the world. But the power of Abdu'l-Bahá's words are fascinating to me. A hundred years later, close to, officials in the U.S. government actually end up giving that same advice to their European counterparts. I just think that's an that's an amazing story. Mm. They said, put your spreadsheets away. This isn't a question of funding. This isn't a question of how you figure out your finances. Funding is not the problem here. It is integration. Mm. It is deeper unity. That's what you need. Oh, that's fantastic. That that's <laughs> fantastic. You have a podcast um, on YouTube, so it's a vlog cast, re reimagining our world. What is that and why was it important for you to start it? Oh, I started that in the middle of the pandemic in December 2020. The reason I started it was that I saw there were so many depressed, anxious people who'd given up hope, who felt that they've been blindsided, who were confused about what was going on in the world and had lost all hope. And I thought, again, this is based on marching orders from the Baha'i writings, um, we're told that what we need to do is to, uh, the Guardian says, not just give recommendations for how to create peace, but create the belief in people that peace is not only possible, but, but inevitable, mm. and to instill hope in them. That is our job. Mm. Wait, repeat those, repeat those again. Those are, those are, that's a great list right there, because this is like, I was, my final question was going to be like, what's the takeaway? What can we as individuals take away from this discussion and affect uh, change towards peace. But you just kind of listed it right there. 
Okay, so there are three things. One of them is to correlate the Baha'i teachings with the needs of the world and come up with concrete recommendations of what steps that can we take based on a principled approach that will solve X problem, whether it's the pandemic or future pandemics or climate change or fill in the blank. So that's coming up with concrete recommendations. Principled though, that's the key word, principled recommendations. So Guardian says that's not enough. What people actually need is to believe that it is possible. There's a famous phrase I love, uh, what, the, what the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. If you don't believe something's possible, whether in your individual life or at collective life, you're not going to pursue it and it ain't going to happen. And most people feel that way about world peace. They don't really believe it's possible. And people feel that way about, exactly, that it's a chimera. When I, I, I talk about this a lot. When I was a kid, we talked about world peace and like, oh, it's achievable. We can have world peace. Nowadays, you bring up world peace, people roll their eyes. Oh, you're so naive. It's never going to happen. Humans are always going to be at each other's throats. They're greedy buggers and uh, will never have uh, that pie-in-the-sky utopian ideal. That's the reason I wrote my book. It's, it's, it's to, because we have to get smart about persuasively, rationally, logically, and with good arguments, as Abdu'l-Bahá tells us, to convince and persuade people and bring them along. And this is where you, you start to question people's mindset and get them to examine their mindsets. You know, why do they think the way they do? What is it that's actually driving them? These old stories that they're telling themselves about humanity and about reality and how can they replace them with more empowering ones, okay? But going back to the list, so the second thing is creating the belief that it's possible mm -hmm. and achievable and the third is inculcating hope. Mm. And by doing that, if you can convince someone that peace is possible and achievable and then tell them, and here's how you can do it, mm. wow, if that doesn't inculcate hope, I don't know what does. So I decided to start this vlogcast um, in December to do exactly that, have a conversation. I go live on Facebook and YouTube. So I, I did it initially a weekly and now it's uh, second, fourth Saturdays of each month. But to sort of say, okay, here are my reflections and then invite people to comment, participate. Mm. Now, a lot of people are shy about participating live um, by putting comments, but I get a lot of emails from people. And I've made a lot of amazing friends, new friends, people I didn't know before who are really interested in peace and are really excited by the possibilities that we can achieve it. And here are some ideas for ways to get from here to there. Mm. So that's why I did it, really to create to create hope. Well, that's fantastic. And folks, please find out more about Savaida Mani Ewing uh, and her Center for Peace and Global Governance, cpgg.org, about her recent book, especially The Alchemy of Peace and the Reimagining Our World, kind of live podcast on YouTube. Um, is there other ways people can follow you and get to know your work? I think the, the website and the YouTube videos are the best. And for the books, they're all available on Amazon, both in hard copy form, you know, trade paper or uh, Kindle. So feel free wherever in the world you are, the, the Alchemy of Peace is available as are all and the other do books. Do you have a website for your life coaching? I do. Uh, it's called Unleash You Coaching, unleashyoucoaching.com. 
We'll put all the links uh, in the information below the Thank podcast. You. And this has just been exciting, mind-expansive conversation. Uh, your expertise is staggering and i really thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing this i hope that it turns a lot of people on to this maybe the most important mission like like you said that's what it's all about it's world peace baby the hippies were right exactly it it is world peace and it is world federation and the guardian you know told us this many many times you know he wrote to individuals i just tell you this in the 1930s telling them that that when we share about the Baha'i faith with our friends, the first topic we should talk about is the need, the imminent need for a world federation, because it is the only solution to, to attaining peace. We don't, often we don't make it the first topic we talk about. I don't know. I think stockpiling arms is a better way to achieve peace. I don't know. Call me old fashioned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. A chemical weapon here or there, sure. a nuclear weapon in your back pocket. Okay, I I, I get that. Yeah. So Vaida yeah, Mani Yuning, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Rain. I really and enjoyed it. And thank you for all the cobblers that have been listening. And uh, and the opticians. And the opticians. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So long. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.